0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation or circumstances. So, Shani, we are at part three. So, the end of the trilogy, which is exciting, right? And all on shares. So, this whole thing kicked off. We got an email from David. Well, we heard from David, I think Sunday, so a couple nights ago, so we heard from David again, and he commented that his favorite trilogy is The Godfather, but he also pointed out that most trilogies seem to fall over in the third episode, (laughs) so this is a bit of pressure on us.
1: It is a bit of pressure on us, but as our friend Laura Zichelli says, pressure makes diamonds, mate. But you always, so before you say something, you always pick on me in these intros, so it's going to be my turn to pick on you.
0: What do you you mean by pick on (laughs)
1: It's always you asking me questions about my life, so it's my turn to ask you.
0: Okay, let's All right. let's do this. My life is not what? exciting. I have <laughs> nothing I have nothing interesting to say.
1: Well, I know you're going to ask me this, but I'm going to get in first. What is your favorite trilogy?
0: Well, I don't know. I was actually, I was chatting to Will. I mean, you probably heard because you were sitting here. I was chatting with Will, who's our producer out, you know? before that. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> yeah. um, you just told me that you had problems because you're not breathing enough. And yeah, we're trying to figure it out. I mean, The Godfather's obviously up there. I couldn't remember. Did they make it? A fourth Lethal Weapon?
1: You're asking the wrong person. Yeah, I know,
0: because you haven't seen any movies. No. <laughs> I confirmed that there are four Indiana Jones, so that does not work. No. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll sit back to the future. But there was that one with the train, and that's just ridiculous. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: you I, don't think all of them are ridiculous? You just <laughs> no, <laughs> the I think the one with the train? <laughs> I think
0: one is pretty good. You okay. told me you watched it the <laughs> other day. It, I did. I yeah. did. Yeah. Okay, so now you picked on me. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So we did, um, we did want to continue to thank people that are leaving us rati- ratings and comments on their podcast apps. We really appreciate it. And I think, you know, obviously we look at these things in the morning and it sets off a bit of a flurry of text messages between the two of us. So thank you for bringing a bit of happiness into our very, very dull lives at the moment.
0: So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely dull. Definitely dull. And the one, the one funny thing about these are. There's creative spelling of your name. Mm. Most people, I will say, most people got it right. Yeah, but well, I think it's
1: the problem is that it's phonetic, and you say my name very differently. <laughs>
0: to I, I, a lot of
1: people. I
0: disagree. Every time I say <laughs> "Shani," you turn your head, so I think that's an indication that I'm doing it correctly.
1: <laughs> I've just become used to it now. So, what what about a little test? How do you say my full name, Mark? Like, and you claim to be my best friend, so you should. Know this—that
0: makes me sound pathetic. <laughs> one, you want your full real name, or
1: no, no, just
0: just Shawnee. yeah, yeah, Jayamane.
1: I'll take it. I'll take it. I mean, I couldn't even say my last name for the first fifteen years of my life. So. Yeah, well,
0: that's that's concerning. <laughs> okay. okay, so why don't we uh, why don't we get into this? So, as a reminder, in our first episode, we talked about how to find a great company and the different things you look for to try to identify a company that has a moat. Then in the second episode, we focused on valuation, and today we're going to find the share that's right for you.
1: And finding the share that is right for you is a bit like dating, hence the title of the series.
0: Exactly, exactly. So yeah, it is a bit like dating, and you know I think like dating, it means what is right for one person may not necessarily be right for the other.
1: I mean, before we move on, should we explain why Swipe Right for Shares is related to dating?
0: I think, I, don't. I think most people got it. It's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty common cultural reference now. <laughs> would you like to explain it?
1: No, no, I'd really like to hear you explain it, Mark.
0: Well, before you were very concerned that your mother would listen to this, but we know she doesn't. No. <laughs> and you were concerned that she would learn that you, um, partook in online dating. So swiping right means that on Tinder mm-hmm. that that is a person that you want to connect with. Yeah. And if they swipe right on you, there you go.
1: There you go. It's a match.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Anyway, we named it that because we knew this third episode was coming. And, you know, much like dating, a successful relationship with an investment is, you know, hopefully a long-term relationship. And... What we want to accomplish today is describe how you find that share that you can settle down and grow old with. (laughs) And the way that you do that is you make sure that you understand your objectives, and that way you can select a share that's aligned with those objectives.
1: Okay, Mark. So in this little dating scenario, what is a bad relationship with a share?
0: A bad relationship? Well, in our opinion at Morningstar, and I think our personal opinion, a bad relationship with a share is a bit like day trading. Right. So that is kind of like a constant series of one night stands. Right. (laughs) Like it's thrilling and exciting at the beginning. And then later you're disappointed and full of regret. And, you know, even though pretty much everybody who tries it fails at it every once in a while, something really good happens. Right. And that's what you talk to your mates at the barbecue about.
1: I'm not going to comment on that. But the only takeaway I've got gotten from your little analogy is that we've been locked up way too long in our houses. So if you're listening, Gladys, please let us out so we don't have to face any more of this. So today we're going to play matchmakers between people and chairs. So how do we do this, Mark?
0: Yeah. Okay. And also I think if Gladys is listening, we would appreciate a rating and comment.
1: (laughs) What do you think she'd say, mate?
0: I I don't know. Hopefully something good. Hopefully something good. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully she's busy and doesn't have time to listen to podcasts. But anyway, we will see. All right. So let's continue this analogy for a little bit. So obviously bear with me here, Shawnee. So like any relationship, it's important to know you're on the same page and that you understand the expectations that are baked into that relationship. Cause after all, if you don't match up to those expectations, things are not going to work out for you. Um, so, you know, our one night stand analogy, if someone thinks it's a one night stand and the other person thinks you're going to get married it's a problem. So it's the same thing with investing. You need to understand yourself. You have to understand what you're comfortable with and what types of situations you thrive in. So, And the other thing that we talk about in all these is different types of relationships work for different people. It's the same way of investing. There's no right way or wrong way to do it, but there is a right or wrong way for you to do it. So if you find a share and you understand what the risks are with those shares, you understand the expectations baked in and you are comfortable, then that's what you want to do.
1: So what is your perfect relationship with a share, Mark?
0: Okay, so do you think that this is worse? Is this worse than the other (laughs) analogy that we did, the balance sheet and income statement one?
1: (laughs) Well, people really like that. So we'll see what happens. We
0: hope. Yeah, so my perfect relationship with a share involves two things. So I like companies with lower business risk, And therefore, there's less uncertainty about their future cash flows and fair value. I like companies that have a competitive advantage that over time will accrue to me. And I don't know, this slow and steady approach just aligns with what I believe in and also aligns with what I think my investing edge is, which is structural and behavioral.
1: So my guess is that there are a couple of things in this statement that may be confusing to some listeners. So let's start walking through them. We're going to explain two concepts in there today, which we think will help investors find the shares that work for them. The concept of uncertainty about future cash flows and fair value and the concept of edge. So where should we start, Mark?
0: All right. Why don't we start with uncertainty? And a key component in investing is the relationship between risk and return. So as investors, we take on risk in order to generate returns. If we do it properly, that means that we make sure we are appropriately compensated for any additional risk that we take on. If we do it poorly, we are taking on lots of risk that we perhaps don't fully grasp and we're getting very little return.
1: We hear a lot about risks as investors, but most of us don't bother to sit down and think about the types of risks we face and what actually matters to us. So if you've listened to our previous episodes, you know that the biggest risk we think investors face and should concentrate on is the risk of not achieving your goals. And that's a risk that your asset allocation is not appropriate for the rate of return that you need to achieve your goals. But today we're talking about shares and finding the right ones for you. So we need to frame that a little differently.
0: Yeah. So when we buy a share, we are, of course, buying an ownership stake in a company. As we discussed in our last podcast, the price of a share is dependent upon the future cash flows that are generated by the company. So that is the first risk we are going to focus on. Will the company we've invested in succeed or fail? What are the risks the company faces with generating those future cash flows?
1: We believe that over the long term, the fundamentals of a company will drive returns that are achieved. So those fundamentals of how a company does are critically important to your investment. The level of certainty that you have around these cash flows will also influence another risk we worry about as investors, which is volatility, or how much an investment will bounce around in value.
0: And volatility, especially short-term volatility, is a risk that receives too much emphasis. But for certain investors, those approaching a goal like retirement or people in retirement, that can be a very real risk. So let's
1: talk about how investors should think about risk. Earlier, we said that one of the key components of investing is to make sure that we're being compensated for the risk that we take on. We should explore this concept because it's important.
0: So let's take a hypothetical example of a company so we can explain the concept and then we can get into some details. Let's say you have a startup biotech company that's trying to develop a new treatment. That treatment is in clinical testing right now, and it's unclear if it's effective or even if it will get approved, which hopefully are related. (laughs) And remember, this is a startup. So we're not talking about Pfizer here that has 20 different treatments in the pipeline and a bunch on the market. This is it. If it gets approved, they'll make some money. If it doesn't, they're likely going to run out of money and go out of business.
1: Yeah. And this is obviously a really high-risk situation as an investor. So to buy shares in this company means. The upside of that drug getting approved needs to be substantial, and that means that what the company is worth if the drug is approved needs to be significantly higher than what you pay for it. The larger the gap, the larger the potential return, because in our hypothetical, one drug biotech company, if the drug doesn't get approved, the company goes bankrupt and you lose all your
0: money. We will get into some examples about how this risk and return trade-off works, but let's talk a bit about uncertainty of future cash flows in more realistic scenarios. There are certainly companies that are similar to what we described, but these are very risky outliers. Most investors avoid situations like that. I said that I like to buy shares of companies with low uncertainty. So what does that actually mean?
1: So this is actually where we go back to our first two episodes. So in episode one, you hopefully learn that a great business is one that has a sustainable competitive advantage that allows it to do well against competition, which is other companies. Doing well means that it's able to capture more of the sales available in whatever industry it operates within and is able to keep more of those sales as cash flows that flow to the bottom line. In episode two, you hopefully learn that the value of a company is based on the cash flows that are generated in the future. So when we talk about risk with a company, we are talking about the risk that the company is able to generate cash flows into the future and at what level.
0: And simplistically, we need to remember that if a company doesn't generate any sales and can't translate those sales or can't translate those sales into cash flows, it will go out of business. And that, of course, is bad for us as shareholders because we lose all our money. So a simple way to think about the riskiness of a company is how uncertain are those cash flows in the future.
1: And as we covered last episode, because the value of a company is determined by using estimated cash flows, the more certain we are of those cash flows, the more certain we are of the value of the company.
0: So the more confidence we have in the future of the company, the safer the investment is. It is more likely to stay in business and is more likely to generate cash that can be returned to investors or reinvested back in the business.
1: So this safety is a good thing, of course, but it comes at a cost. So to invest in a safer company limits the downside of your investment, but it also limits the upside. There is less upside because the range of likely outcomes is limited and investors are able to predict those outcomes with a higher degree of certainty. And that means you're unlikely to be able to get as big of a discount to what it's worth.
0: Hopefully everything conceptually makes sense. Mm -hmm. But Shani, (laughs) what are some of the examples that are factors that increase this uncertainty?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple large buckets that we want to look at when it comes to the degree of uncertainty of future cash flows. So the way the company internally operates, the external forces that impact the company and its market positioning, and the financial position the company is in.
0: And this all makes sense. The more precarious situation a company is in financially, so if it has high debt and limited access to additional financing, the riskier it is. If a company is not operationally efficient, has low margins, it can't invest capital efficiently, then it's riskier. If the company is dramatically impacted by events beyond its control, like the general economy, a lack of pricing power due to its product range or competition in the industry, and material exposure to ESG, or of course environmental, social, and governance factors, the more risky it is. Now, if we're going to get into some specific examples, but if you're thinking about these different factors that will influence the uncertainty about future cash flows and different types of companies, a couple things should start to be obvious. In general, big companies would score higher on many of these factors than small companies. Certain industries would score higher on these factors than other industries. Companies that are headquartered and operate in countries with established rules of law and better safeguards over government overreach score higher on these factors. And, of course, anyone who is investing in the Asia ETF lately is probably finding (laughs) this out.
1: Yeah, so I'll ignore that little dig at your thematic ETF, but you are right, Mark. Um, So a large company that has multiple product lines and that operates across the globe has certain advantages over a small company that just operates in one region or country and has a single product line. To continue with um, an example that we used in a previous episode, if you are a global liquor giant like Diageo and you sell multiple different labels of rum, gin, whiskey, vodka, and tequila, I can see... Mark's eyes light up as I go through that list, um, and you do it in 180 countries, you are more diversified than a distillery in Sydney that sells gin in New South Wales. If you are Diageo and consumer tastes shift away from gin, you would be protected. If New South Wales significantly raises taxes on spirits, it would likely have no material impact. If there was a recession in Australia and people couldn't afford fancy gin, you would be fine.
0: It's also likely that Diageo could respond better to any sort of financial issue, since people would be more willing to lend them money and more willing to invest in equity. There are more assets that could be sold off if Diageo desperately needed cash. In the vast majority of cases, a bigger company has less uncertainty around its future cash flows. In investing speak, we call big companies large-cap companies, and small companies, of course, are small-cap companies. All things being equal, large-cap companies are less risky than small-cap companies.
1: We can also see this across different sectors. So sectors that are less sensitive to the business cycle have more predictable cash flows. They're more certain and therefore safer. The sectors that have less sensitivity to how the economy does are consumer defensive, healthcare, and utilities. That should make sense since they're all things that you're going to need no matter what the economy is doing.
0: And then there are some sectors that have moderate sensitivity to the economic cycle. So that's communication services, energy, industrials, and technology.
1: And finally, the most sensitive to the economic cycle are basic materials, consumer cyclical, financial services, and real estate.
0: Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a Shareside investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. and Take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. Okay, so we're continuing to paint a bit of a picture here on what can be considered safer investments. And we're starting to do it in a way that hopefully makes sense for investors to start identifying those companies, even without doing a deep study of them. Large cap companies are generally considered safer than small cap companies. Companies in non-cyclical sectors are generally safer than those that are more exposed to the economic cycle. But we're missing a piece – we're missing other factors about a specific company that increase our confidence in future outcomes. Those are quality factors. Look at the way the company operates, the financial strength of the company, and the durability of the business model.
1: Yeah. Now, there are many different opinions out there in the market about what represents quality, but one factor that is almost universally agreed to is that companies with a sustainable competitive advantage are higher quality. Think about those factors we discussed in our first episode in this trilogy as we looked at moats, return on invested capital, and margin. We can look at factors that denote financial health like debt to equity. We can also look at the stability of earnings and cash flow over the years.
0: And there are indexes that have been created using these factors, and there are ETFs that track these indexes. So VanEck has one in Australia. BetaShares has one in, example, in, in Australia. But if you're looking for individual shares, we can run through a couple of examples using the Morningstar uncertainty rating.
1: So the uncertainty rating refers to how confident our analysts are in their fair value estimate, which, as we explained, is how confident they are in the predictability of their cash flow estimates. We give every company in our coverage universe an uncertainty rating of low, medium, high, very high, and extreme.
0: Yeah, which is a little bit fun. Like We've commented before <laughs> that Morningstar does not exactly name things creatively, mm-hmm. but extreme, mm-hmm. I mean- that's that's kind of fun, right? It's wild. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And you know, we're having a lot of fun here, right? Because we are assessing the predictability of future cash flows. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, since every other fun activity is banned, I guess that's what we're left with, mate.
0: I agree. I agree. Okay, so let's move on from this fun fact and get into what we were actually gonna say. So if we look at Australian companies that have the lowest uncertainty ratings within our research coverage, only four companies fall in that category. So there's Ansel and they make medical equipment. Basically, just protective gloves. We've got Woolies and Coles, and then Endeavour. And Endeavour was recently spun off from Woolies, and they run Dan Murphy liquor stores, among other things.
1: So a couple of things jump out here. All of these businesses are not going to be impacted much by changing market conditions. Three out of four have moats. Everyone but Coles. Not hard to see why they all have predictable cash flows.
0: Exactly. So if we look at the other end of the spectrum, we of course move to that extreme rating now. I'm very sad to report that there are no companies within our coverage (laughs) universe in Australia that fall into that extreme category. So we do have 15 companies in the a lot less creatively and excitingly named very high category. None of those 15 have a moat. Only one falls within the sectors that have the least exposure to market cycles, and that's Avita Medical, which is a smaller company that's trying to disrupt burn treatments with a new approach. Only five of the 15 pay a dividend, which is pretty unusual in Australia, and eight of them have negative earnings growth over the last three years. So now that we understand the different types of companies that are out there, we want to see how this intersects with what each of us is good at as an investor. And as we've said over and over again, there are countless ways to be a successful investor. In this series of episodes, we are concentrating on individual shares, and we do think that these lessons are applicable for all investors, but we also need to acknowledge that buying individual shares is one of the hardest ways to be a good investor. Many investors choose to instead focus on saving money, establishing goals, and creating a plan to achieve those goals, and then of course focusing on asset allocation and using ETFs and funds to get exposure to those different asset classes. That is a much easier way to be a successful investor. So if you're going to invest in individual shares, you need to understand your edge. So why don't you walk us through this concept of edge, Shani?
1: Yeah, sure. So your edge is the advantage that you have over other investors. And an advantage is important because remember that the average investor is represented by the index. If you're not going to be a completely passive investor, then you're trying to do better than average You can try and do better than average in the asset allocation decisions you make, you can try and do better than the average by picking active ETFs or funds, or by investing in things like thematic and factor-based ETFs and funds, and you can try and do better than average by picking shares. Today, we are covering shares, so to do better than average, you need an edge over the average investor, and edge comes in four flavours, informational, analytical, structural, and behavioural. We've talked about these concepts before, but now we're going to apply different types of shares to them.
0: Let's start with higher business risk shares. And remember, if we're taking on more risk, of course, there should be more return with these shares. And these can be smaller companies or earlier on in their existence who maybe aren't making a profit yet. They can be cyclical companies and lower quality companies They either have high levels of debt or less stable earnings or just poor fundamentals like a low return on invested capital and lower margins. So to be successful investing in these companies, you probably need to have an informational edge or analytical edge. With informational edge, that means knowing things that are not widely known. And analytical edge means taking the available information that is known and doing a better job of interpreting it.
1: And both of these are hard. We live in a world where information is shared widely and instantly through the internet. So the chances of you being able to access information that nobody else has is very unlikely. And the caveat, of course, is to do this legally. To do this illegally means insider information. In terms of analytical edge, that means that through your interpretation of available information, you come up with a different opinion than the market consensus on a share. And your viewpoint turns out to be correct.
0: And realistically, to have analytical edge, you either need to have specialized knowledge that's very unique or you just have to do a lot of work, work harder than everyone else and really understand the situation a company finds itself in. In our early example of the startup biotech company, the whole premise of that investment is understanding the likelihood of the new treatment getting approved. If you really understood the disease and the treatment approach and maybe thought that there was a 75% chance chance it would work and get approved while the market thought there was a 50% chance, that would be an example of an analytical edge. Your understanding would allow you to better grasp the risk and return trade-off and understand that what's being priced in the share was wrong.
1: Both analytical edge and informational edge tends to work better in parts of the market that are less closely followed. If you're trying to analyse or find out information that isn't widely known about one of the big four banks, you're going to have a lot of company. Countless professional and individual investors are looking at these companies. However, if you're looking at a small cap biotech company, you will have less competition. That's why active investing tends to do better in unloved parts of the market and why these two types of edge work better on riskier companies. So why don't we turn to behavioral edge and structural edge, which is what you said you thought you had at the beginning of the episode.
0: Yeah, that's right, Shani. I want to invest in higher quality shares that have more certainty about their future cash flows. These are generally larger companies in developed markets. That means that there are a lot more investors that pay attention to them and spend their time analyzing them. And I'm realistic. I'm not going to do a better job with analysis of these companies, and I don't know anything that a lot of other people don't know. I don't have an informational edge or analytical edge, but I do believe I have a behavioral edge that allows me to buy these companies at the right time. To be greedy when everyone else is fearful, as Warren Buffett put it, drink, (laughs) Shawnee. And that means also avoiding the tops of the market when speculation is running wild.
1: So, Mark, why do you think that you have this ability? I think we need to acknowledge, of course, that most people don't.
0: You sound skeptical. (laughs) Well, I I think part of this just kind of stems from my temperament. But I also think it stems from when I started investing and the impact that has had on me. So I started investing on my own when I was in uni, which was right before the dot-com crash. And I've said this in previous episodes, I didn't know what I was doing. And kind of even more dangerously, I didn't realize that I didn't know what I was doing. So need to say, I got caught up in the hype that lots of people did at the same time and invested some terrible things. This mistake has really caused this sort of natural aversion to hype stock and speculative excess.
1: Which we, of course, always have the pleasure of hearing about over and over again during your rants.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. I, I, <laughs> I still don't like the character the characterization of them as rants. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, I do think that this natural skepticism—I do have to acknowledge—it's um, it's cost me money in the past couple of years, as you know, I've been building up cash and I haven't piled into all these things I quote unquote ran about, so thematic ETFs and more speculative investments. But I do feel over time and over a full market cycle, it has its advantages.
1: The other piece of edge that you talked about is structural, which relates to how many professional investors um, have to take a short term approach to investing because of career risk and because they have to deal with inflows and outflows from their funds. Why do you think you have this advantage?
0: Yeah, having a long term focus and truly being a long-term investor is one of the easiest things to do as an individual investor with longer-term goals. This goes hand-in-hand with behavioral edge because it's easier to buy shares when the market is going down if you are focused 10 years out on the horizon and not worried about whatever short-term problem everyone else is worried about. This also lends itself to investing in companies with sustainable competitive advantages because these advantages need time to play out. You invest in a company with a moat because over the long term, That sustainable advantage will accrue to you as an investor, but it's not going to be instantaneous. A higher margin and the ability to invest capital in the business at a higher rate of return is not something that's going to play out in six months or as a day trader. But over the years, this advantage will compound and accrue to shareholders.
1: So how does this play out in your investment accounts?
0: Well, this morning, I went back and I looked at the account that I started investing in when I was still in uni. And so that's obviously my longest standing account. And I currently hold 14 different companies in this account. Now, to be clear, I have other accounts. This makes up around 25% of what I have invested in the market. And in these other accounts, I do hold funds and ETFs. And I'll also say the other caveat about this account is I don't put any new savings into it and haven't in a long time. But of those 14 different shares, the average purchase date is 2009. So nine of those holdings I bought during the GFC... Three I bought in 2002 and 2003, and that's when the market was still recovering from the dot com crash. And then nine of those 14 have moat ratings by Morningstar, even though I bought them, of course, long before I worked here. And of the ones that don't have a moat rating, we don't cover most of them. So we only cover one security that I own that uh, in this account that doesn't have a moat rating. And, you know, there's some survivorship bias in there, and I've certainly made p- plenty of mistakes along the way. But most of these holdings represent the types of shares that I think are right for me. They all have higher certainty of cash flows and lower business risk. So I understand the risk and return trade-off that I'm making. They also align with the edge I believe I have as an investor, both when I bought them and how long I've held them.
1: Okay, so let's sum up today's episode with some lessons for investors. Today was about finding the right shares for you and was meant to build on the first two episodes of this trilogy when we looked at finding great companies and valuing shares. Hopefully you understand the different types of shares out there and understand the attributes of shares that have higher business risk and lower business risk. Hopefully you understand the types of edge you can exploit as an investor in individual shares.
0: If you don't invest in individual shares, we hope this information made you a little better informed about funds and ETFs and how to evaluate their holdings. So take a look at the attributes of the shares held in these funds and ETFs and think about how these choices will impact your returns. Are they small companies or large companies? Are they high-quality companies or low-quality companies? Are they concentrated in certain sectors? And what are the attributes of those sectors?
1: And remember that the most important thing in investing is to gain an understanding of the different risks you are exposed to and how that fits into your plan to achieve your goals. We want you to be informed so you can make deliberate choices and not follow some share touted on a message board or blindly follow what a mate tells you. Hopefully, all three of these episodes helped you become a better informed investor.
0: We've completed our first trilogy. We have, yeah. Now, you're worried that this one's going to get us fired.
1: (laughs) I am a little bit, yeah. Because of
0: some of the dating references in (laughs) the beginning. So if this is our last podcast ever— And Jamie, if
1: you're listening, sorry. (laughs)
0: You don't have to apologize on the podcast. <laughs> Jamie is my boss and runs uh, runs our business here in Australia. But anyway, thank you guys very much for joining us. We do have something new and exciting. We have an Instagram page. We do, yeah. And we have been told that if we don't have 300 followers by the end of October, corporate marketing is going to take away our Instagram page. <laughs> so please, it's like we're children. Yeah. And we, we can't play with the Instagram page anymore. So please go on to, um, what's it called?
1: At Morningstar Investor AU.
0: There we go. I should I should learn the name first. <laughs> um, so please go on. Follow our Instagram page. We put a bunch of stuff up there from our editorial team and from our webinars and podcasts. And of course, we would love comments. However, you spell Shawnee's name, <laughs> that's fine. As long as you give us a five star rating, yeah, and give we it have your a nice best go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys very much.